Good evening, everyone. I am Dr. Denise Milne, and I'm CEO of CASA and the CASA Foundation. Thank you for coming tonight to the Dr. Roger Bland Lecture Series on Improving Children, Child and Youth Mental Health, presented by CASA, as well as our partners, the Institute of Health Economics, the University of Alberta Department of Psychiatry, the Edmonton Public School Board, and the Alberta Alliance on Mental Illness and Mental Health. We are very excited about the session tonight on children and care and mental health. We have a dynamic keynote speaker tonight coming from Calgary, Dr. Angelique Jenny, and an excellent group of panel members. So considerations of safety have, have long been at the forefront of the work with children and youth um, in our system. Uh, and though sometimes it looks like it has some changes, not changes. It certainly has evolved over the years, and at CASA we have certainly felt that. The introduction of trauma-informed care has resulted in more in-depth explorations of the meaning of safety for both young people and their caregivers. Determining what safety means for individuals both inside and outside of the system of care is a critical point of connection and intervention. This presentation will take a look at the concept of safety as, a cri as critical to mental health of children living in care arrangements. As you know from the previous lecture uh, sessions, it is our goal with the Dr. Roger Bland Lecture Series to provide information that is helpful to you and meaningful to you. We want to inspire dialogue, hope, and wisdom through the expertise of our keynote speakers as well as our panel members and to engage you, the audience, in a conversation and learning. We want to continue offering these events and we'd like to continue having them free of charge and, and supporting CASA is a fantastic way to do this. This is my fundraising hat coming on. If you'd like to support the ongoing work of the lecture series sponsored by CASA and our partners, you, can you please text CASA at 393939 for information on how to donate um, as well as there's donation cards attached to your package of information. We deeply appreciate anything that you can do to support uh, this event and you will also receive a tax receipt for any donation over $20. I'd now like to pass on uh, my mic to Leslie McDonald. As you know, Leslie from Global TV News as well as her own communications company has been our, our uh, moderator for the uh, entire uh, lecture series and so we again welcome her back on board. Thank you so much. Thank you, Denise. And thank you all for, uh, for coming here this evening. Uh, I think you're going to find it's worth it. This is indeed um, an interesting topic and one that, uh, that we're looking forward to having a really open dialogue about and looking at it from all different sides of the issues. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. Um, just in case you haven't had the wonderful opportunity to find it yet, the washrooms are located in an interesting area. They are sort of back down here around the corner and up the ramp. And, um, and I know that we'd, uh, we'd love for you to tweet during this event if you have anything to say online, uh, but we ask that you keep your phones on silent because sometimes inevitably, and I, you don't want to be the person whose phone rings in the middle of something that's really important. <laughs> um, 
As Denise mentioned, our topic this evening is children in care, and it is going to be an interesting evening. Our keynote is Dr. Angelique Jenny, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Calgary. She is also the Woods Homes Research Chair, and that's a multi-service, non-profit children's mental health center that bridges academia with community-based practice. Dr. Jenny has over 25 years of experience in intervention and prevention services in the children's mental health, child protection, and violence against women sectors. Her research and program development is extensive. Everything uh, from the impacts of child trauma to the training of social work students. Her talk this evening focuses on why relationships matter and the paradox of safety and connection for children. She drove up from Calgary to be here this evening. We are absolutely delighted to give a warm welcome to Dr. Angelique Jenny. Okay, am I on? There. Thank you very much. Uh, nothing like a little bit of pressure, like dynamic and really exciting presentation. And I'm going to talk all about child trauma, which is generally not as, uh, as fun as you might expect it to be. And, uh, and this venue is kind of exciting for me too. So I will try to see everyone, uh, but I'll sort of stay here for the time being. So I'm going to talk to you about... Oh, here we go. I can magically make them work. So what does it mean to feel safe? And I'm going to pose a couple of questions for you to think about. Uh, how have we learned, or how have you learned, um, to feel safe? What are the mechanisms of relational safety? How do we know uh, what is safe and what is not? And um, what if we can't tell the difference? How do you uh, sort that out? I feel like we're a small enough audience, I wanna ask you to sort of yell out, like, what do you think? How would you know that you were safe? A safe place, but how do you know you're in a safe place? Your needs are met, your, sorry? Guidance from parents, but again, what do you think safety really is? You don't feel threatened. How do I, how do I, hmm? Safe from harm. Safe from harm. How do I know those things are happening though? You feel it in your body. It's a feeling. It's an emotional connection. When we are scared or under threat, and uh, that includes feelings of rejection, there's actually a part of our brain that it allows us to, uh, to feel empathy. And when we're scared or under threat, that part of our brain doesn't function because we don't need to care about others in order to look after ourselves. So if you don't have the capacity for empathy, then the first thing that's going to go is your capacity for connection and relationship. So these are just some of the things that I will come back to at the end of the talk. And then when uh, and you're really in for a treat, I had the option, opportunity to talk with my panelists before and uh, I think we're gonna have a very dynamic discussion. So just a few things to think about, which I'll come back to at the end of the talk. So the question is, if safety is a feeling, can we create it? How do we, we heard safe 
place, and I have up here safe space. The youth and families we serve often act the way they do because of where they are, not who they are. And the real skill in describing our work is to articulate the first step out of danger, not the eventual safe destination. So I think it's a, an error in the, when we do child mental health services or fa foster services, we were talking a little bit about um, how often people think, well, all I have to do is really love this kid. All I have to do is really care about them. And it's, it's really to set the stage for that child to step out of danger. We won't provide everything that has to be provided right from the beginning. Many feel that trauma-informed care is the key to this journey. And so I'll talk a bit about what trauma-informed care is and how we practice it in our work with children and youth who are in the system. So first, we need to understand the impact of trauma. So we know that trauma increases uh, the chance that you're going to have difficulties with emotional control. That's affective dysregulation, your inability to manage yourself. Uh, and that's when we see people self-harming or using substances to help them manage their emotional state. We also see emotional numbness and dissociation, that kind of shutting down, shutting off. And notably, when you have difficulties managing your emotions and you shut down, you're either overly stimulated or you're understimulated, you also have difficulties maintaining safe, stable, and what we call mutually satisfying relationships, all of which are important. We see increased risks of depression and anxiety, difficulties in accurate appraisal. This is very important. If I can't accurately appraise myself in the world, um, if I can't see myself as good, or I can't see myself, um, if I have stigma, guilt, shame, and also, if I have the inability to read danger accurately, then I'm not going to be able to keep myself safe. So I want you to think about this because this knowledge actually informs our care approaches. Because if we understand that people are coming to us sometimes, kids are coming to us with all of these challenges, relational challenges, we might understand a little bit about their experiences of how they experience us providing care to them. So this is the paradox of, uh, of complex trauma, in that complex trauma, I feel like I'm going to turn around for you, only occurs in the context of relationships. It's often, it happens in the context of an interpersonal relationship. Here are where you would see repeated experiences of interpersonal or systemic. And you might argue that systemic are not personal, but when we give you an example, so physical sexual abuse, intimate partner violence, community violence, community violence is systemic violence, prolonged experiences of toxic stress, uh, forms of racism are uh, systemic violence, which attack an individual's sense of self and who they are in relation to others, which makes it interpersonal. So this paradox is that complex trauma occurs in the context of a relationship, but healing also is required, a relationship is required for healing to occur. And that's your, the piece. The other piece I just wanna point out is 
Adverse childhood experiences, we've been talking about ACEs for a long time, they don't determine who we are or who we become. They're simply a risk factor to take into consideration. So we can't immediately make judgments about that. So what is trauma-informed practice? Well, it's a common conceptual framework that, uh, that we use to create opportunities for systems, systems of care specifically, uh, hospital systems, child mental health systems, um, so that people who work in these systems can improve the service of care. So remember the piece when I said, if we understand what trauma does to people, uh, then we can also think about how we design our systems, our organizations, our, our homes, our out-of-home care environments to prioritize the emotional and physical safety of the kids in them, uh, facilitating control over and response to those trauma experiences. And by doing so, we help them integrate strength and promote recovery in the process. Although service providers cannot influence past events, the impact these events have on individuals, uh, providers are the ones who can provide or limit that exposure to ongoing violence, and they can reduce triggering environments that uh, might create potentially traumatizing aspects of service. I also want to mention that trauma-informed care is maybe the new and upcoming term that's being used, but I think it's been around for a long time. And if we think of any of our traditional indigenous forms of healing, um, I think we would call those trauma-informed practices. And we've also talked in the past of client-centered, client-led um, practices and based care. All of those would be concerned, would be considered trauma-informed practices. So it's made up of these practice principles. Safety is right at the top, trust, choice and control, empowerment, collaboration, strengths-based, and a recognition of cultural, historical, and gender issues as part of understanding, uh, providing a trauma-formed environment. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna go through four basic principles and strengths of trauma-informed approaches. So the first one is to understand trauma and violence and its impacts on people's lives and behaviors. An example of that is when we recognize people's strengths, uh, when we concern, express our concern for people and their safety and their well-being, and when we understand that individuals, both children and adults, because we don't really have systems of care for children that don't involve the behavior of adults as well, so I'm gonna talk about both. Um, but when individuals act out or misbehave, they're trying to tell us something. And we want to be able to hear that message and respond to it while also ensuring the least amount of harm happens. So the practice principle that we use is that we think about children do well. In fact, I would say everyone does well when they can. So when we see someone struggling to do well in their environment, we want to ask ourselves, what's getting in the way of a child's ability to behave or respond appropriately in this moment? And if we understand that behavior, um, we have a chance of responding to it or addressing it in a way that will be helpful. And there's always this fine balance, I find, between addressing and not addressing issues. And you'll say, what are, what are you talking about? My example is, um, 
when you see conflict amongst kids in an, an environment, this happens at school a lot, uh, we can see it in therapeutic programming. So you know that a child is acting out because of a trauma history, and so you say to yourself, I'm gonna ignore that behavior, even though it was unsafe and a bit frightening, and I'll deal with it later. Um, I'll deal with it in another way. I'll deal with it in an individual session. But when we have a group care environment or a therapeutic group environment or there are other kids around like in a classroom, by not addressing it, we make the other kids in the room wonder whether or not we know how to handle conflict and whether or not we know how to create a safe space for everyone. And so we have to be careful that we aren't letting something actually change the experience for everyone else in the room and have them judge the uh, the facilitator of that process. Safety should be at the forefront of this work and harm should not come to children or caregivers without some opportunity for repair. So things happen and uh, conflict happens, but we can, if you can't do it in the moment, then you do it afterwards or in some sort of follow-up. The second principle and strategy for trauma and violence-informed approaches is to create emotionally and physically safe environments for clients, caregivers, and service providers. And this requires us paying attention to those physical environments. Um, do we have good signs? Do we have clear procedures? Do kids and adults know what to expect when they come into our spaces? Um, do, can we keep things confidential? And have we sought client input in that process? Have we asked people uh, what do you like about it here? What don't you like about it? And what could we change? Examples of this would be individuals feeling deserving, understood, recognized, that they are fostering a sense of connection to build trust. And again, this clear expectations of what's going to happen every single moment. So safety, which is the other challenge, is not actually static. So the problem with thinking about, oh, we're going to create a safe environment, is that your environment might be safe for this child one day and not safe the next day. So safety is subjective and it's also dynamic, which means it's based on your, someone else's experiences. My sense of safety will be different from all of your sense of safety. And what bothers me in a room might not bother other people. Whoops. So that's why we need to think about triggers. Now, I can't see any of you. I was gonna, my understanding is there's some educators in the room. Do you wanna like yell? Yay, educators, teachers, important people in children's lives. Um, have any of you had the opportunity to see this uh, film called Paper Tigers about trauma-informed classrooms? Yes, okay, good, so you, can you just explain to everyone what paper tigers are? Anyway, so trauma can create associations within an individual's brain and body that lead them to experience things that aren't real as real. And this is the concept of the paper tigers that historically were built, like when we're in defensive mode, we're basically built to respond to the attack of a tiger out in our biological history. Um, but we know that not all things that if I have a trauma history, I might respond to things as if they're a tiger, but they're not a real tiger, they're just a paper tiger. 
and that's what we consider triggers. And they're activated by these seemingly harmless situations for others, um, and sometimes even well-intentioned. And that's when you touch someone without warning or permission, and sometimes even uh, sounds and smells or feelings can trigger a child in our presence, and we don't know uh, why that happened. The third principle is that we want to foster opportunities for choice, collaboration, and connection. And this requires training caregivers in critical self-reflection and understanding that there are power differentials. So some of the things that we want to do is how do we con convey non-judgmental responses? How do we provide choices to kids as options and preferences? And can we listen actively to privileged children's voices in the process? The fourth and final one is that we provide a strengths-based and capacity-building approach to support child coping and resilience. So you want to recognize everything that might be impacting on a child's behavior, and then you also want to find ways of building uh, res resilience for children. So some of the ways that we would do this is identify child's strengths, acknowledge effects of historical or structural conditions, and why um, they might be having the experiences that they're having. We also need to teach and model skills for recognizing triggers and helping kids to calm and ground themselves through learning those techniques. So often people say, well, what can I do? So I know I have a, a child with a trauma history in my care. Uh, I'm not a social worker. I have a child with a trauma history in my classroom. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a therapist. What am I supposed to do? So some of the things we want are to increase protective factors that we know can help kids. Remember what I said about kids do well when they can? And so one of the things we can do is try to maximize their chances for doing well. So can we adapt an environment to reduce or limit any stressors or triggers that we know about and increase that sense of safety? Can we promote and increase social supports, internal and external, to the child or their family? Uh, that will promote social skills for them and because we know that relationships are where we go to get uh, assistance when we're feeling stressed out. Can we increase a child's sense of self-efficacy by increasing that internal locus of control? I can change my environment. I do have agency. I can do things. I can make myself feel better. I can tell someone about my problems. I can do things. Can we help kids to access safe physical and mental escapes? So if I know that I have a child who's a runner, for example, who when they're stressed, they want to run away, can I say, you know, it's really not safe for you to run away. Is there a room you could go to in this house that, uh, or in this classroom? Is there a place? Would you like to crawl under your desk instead of running away? Is there something we could do to give you that same sense of safety without increasing your risk? Same thing with mental escapes. We hear all the time about kids who are addicted to their um, tablets, their video games. Never take something away until you understand the, the purpose that that thing serves for that child. Uh, video games are an extremely effective mechanism for distracting oneself from a bad feeling. Extremely effective for getting into a zone or uh, feeling a sense of control over your body and yourself. Uh, 
uh, many kids will talk about how good it feels to play the game because of what it, it's using their body and their brain in a way that separates out um, stress feelings and makes them feel in control and having a sense of competence for a moment. I'm not, that's a whole other talk, obviously. I'm not here saying, get, just give everyone a video game. Uh, that's not exactly going to get us where we want to go. But uh, before you go, oh, take, you know, I need to take that away from you, if a child has run to it and turn it on for some reason, you should say, hey, what is it about that game that makes you feel better about your place in the world? And in all of this, we want to have kids participating in whatever makes things better. So supportive programs, educational programs. We know that school, um, doing well at school is a huge piece for resilience. Therapeutic programming. Can we provide opportunities for success that foster self-esteem? And are we, within any of our environments, teaching skills that help kids develop self-regulation? And that's the ability to identify your feelings, your strategies for managing those feelings, such as breathing, et cetera. And you may say to yourself, you know, those are things that a child should have learned earlier. And that's true. Um, these, sometimes we even work with adults who haven't figured out how to manage their regulation. And we can help with that through coaching and support. And this is where I'm going to talk about what regulation looks like. So we have, there are three main forms of regulation that every one of us participates in. Uh, Auto-regulation, and I just want, you know, how many of you know that you are toe tappers, or pencil chewers, or hair pullers, or skin scratchers, or touchers, or, you know, that kind of, this is the way in which you auto-regulate yourself all the time without even thinking about it. Um, you're completely unconsciously doing those things, but your body is like, I feel anxious, I'm going to tap my foot because you're not doing what I need you to. Co-regulation is where we regulate ourselves in the context of a relationship with someone else. This is optimally how we learn to regulate in the first place. This is what happens when we hold a crying baby in our arms and we rock that baby and we stroke that baby's back and we talk to the baby. We use our bodies to calm the baby's body, all the while trying to transfer that feeling sense to the child. It's the same reason that when a toddler falls in a uh, playground, what's the first thing the toddler does? They look at their caregiver to see if they're hurt because they don't know, right? They're like, I'm going to judge by your facial expression whether I'm going to burst into tears or not. And through that interaction, because I trust you know whether I'm hurt or not. And that's where you get your optimal. We have a couple of exaggerated parental responses to the fall in the playground. You could have the, the, the parent who goes, oh my god, nobody move. Um, you know, call 911. I can't believe, Johnny, you did that to me. You scared mommy so much. You upset me. I can't believe we're never coming here again because you fall. So that's really upbringing. The kid is like, I think I'm okay. But judging by my mom or my dad or whoever is freaking out on me right now, I don't know if I'm okay. You then have the complete opposite. We have the parent who, and 
I'm not judging anyone because everyone's done this when their child hurts themselves and they go, okay, everyone just laugh and see if we can keep him from knowing that he's hurt enough to cry and we'll deal with it later. And that's the parent who goes, okay, everyone smile and go, don't worry, Johnny, all legs bend like that. And uh, we're going to have a special white bus. It's going to come with some sparkling red lights on it. We're going to go and get a special little sock that doesn't move will go on your leg, but nothing bad happened to you today. So there's, there's that. And these are both very extreme ways. But what you really want is the caregiver to go, oh my goodness, that must have scared you. Are you frightened? Come over here. Let me put you on my knee. Let me look at your leg. Let me kiss it better. Let me rub your back. Tell you how I think you should be feeling. Bring you back to baseline. And then you're back out on the playground. And that's what you learn. And that's, we've talked about babies, we've talked about toddlers, but we do this all through our lives. So even as an adult, every one of you in this room knows that if something bad happened to you, you have one person who you would phone first, who you know who would calm you down. You also have in the back of your mind who the last person is that you would ever think of calling that you wanted to calm you down, right? You're like, oh, I'd call this person, and this person I would wait until everything was over before I told them. We do this every day at work when we go to a colleague and say, were you in that meeting? Do you think so? Did that happen? Did I experience that? Constant co-regulation. This is how good therapy works. This is why foster care works so well for some kids. It's called corrective experience. And we use other people to help us understand things about ourselves and the environment that we might be having trouble doing on our own. Self-regulation is the thing we all aspire to, where we say, I need no one, but really, we all need someone. But if we, you can manage yourself or talk yourself through something because you had these other things go okay for you. That's when you hear um, kids sometimes say, I heard your voice in my head telling me it would be okay. I know people who talk to themselves and they use you know, other people's voices to help them through. So those are the three ways. We also see what's called post-traumatic adaptations. And these are ways that people regulate themselves to survive things that are really unregulatable in some ways, like uh, complex trauma. And some of them are functional and some of them are not. So, but regulation is important because if we can't regulate ourselves, we can't keep ourselves safe. We can't keep ourselves present. We can't manage strong emotions so that we don't overreact or underreact. And we also, if we can't regulate, we can't figure out how to feel or how to respond to those feelings. And as I've already mentioned, the key to being able to regulate is having a safe adult in our lives at some point. And if you can't regulate yourself, then you can't provide good care. I never ask this question. I'm one of those horrible presenters. Can I play a video? Uh, I'm not sure we try. Okay, that was, remember I said, can I play a video? And he said, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just try it. It's two minutes. If not, I'll have to act it out in an interpretive dance. It'll be terrible. <laughs> This is Sesame Street. Oh, we have no sound. I can turn it off my end. 
Okay, great. I just want to prep people a little bit. Um, it's Sesame Street, so I'm not traumatizing you with any real, but if Sesame Street can do it, then it's okay for the public. But it is supposed to be upsetting, okay? It's a child's experience of trauma from Sesame Street's perspective. Got to hand it to Sesame Street. So what do we see happen here? We see how play and learning are disrupted by traumatic events. We see how emotions get overwhelmed for the kids involved and that the capacity for self-protection takes over from connection. We see a little girl go to comfort her baby brother and then she can't handle it and she has to comfort just herself with her teddy bear. Uh, we see the baby brother eventually self-soothe um, through sucking his thumb, which might be auto-regulation for him. Neither child has the chance for emotional repair from that experience until grandpa gets there. They're at this heightened state of uh, emotional upset. And the important piece is that grandpa acknowledges the feeling. He says, you're scared. And he provides that opportunity for co-regulation. I know you're scared, come with me, I can help you feel better, so that they aren't left to their own devices. These children are learning that there are adults that they can count on to help them feel safe, even if it's not all the adults in their lives right now. They are learning to look up. And that's going to be a bit of my theme in this, is that children need to learn to look up. And that might seem like an odd thing to say, but there was an interesting study uh, that I'm gonna sort of try to recall, but the, the bottom line was they looked at kids in a regular daycare environment, 
I don't think they harmed anyone on purpose because I think you only have to hang out in daycare for about three minutes and somebody's going to be crying. So but they had kids that they knew had maltreatment histories and they had kids they knew did not have them. And they watched the difference that when a child was crying, something happened, uh, all kids would uh, go over and try to help the crying child out. And often, as toddlers do, there was maybe a misguided pat on the back. There was perhaps an offering up of a toy to get them to stop crying. And when they didn't stop crying, the kid would be like, well, I patted you on the back and I gave you my best toy. Okay, teacher, over to you. Problem's yours. Those kids all looked to the adult teacher in the room to fix the crying child. But the kids with maltreatment histories, they also went over. They patted, they gave them a toy, they maybe pushed them down because they were annoying them because they were crying. And when they couldn't make the crying stop, they turned away and went and did something else and looked after themselves. And at no point did they look to an adult to come and fix the situation because they hadn't had that experience yet of being able to uh, depend on an adult uh, to help them when they were distressed. So this is when, as care providers, we have to realize that fight and flight responses are protective for kids, that we need to remain calm when things are upsetting for them. We also have to remember that what we do with our bodies are as important as what we do with our words and our voices. So if you think about what Grandpa did, he actually got down on his knees. Uh, first he scooped up the baby, but then with the little girl, he went down to her level and he talked to her and then he offered out his hand. He didn't immediately grab her and he gave her a moment to uh, come around to him. And the other piece, remember I talked about adults, there's, there's never kids without adults, right? And when we do this work, there's always caregivers, there's always family members involved. It can go a long way to realizing and recognizing that an adult caregiver in a child's life might have also had these early life experiences and may also have similar challenges around self-regulation and the belief in others to be able to regulate their distress. So it's just another way of thinking about why we don't see um, behaviors that we want to see. So every time you see a behavior that you don't understand, you have to ask yourself, what, what might cause that? And come towards it from a place of empathy. So when we think about that we, and we want to intervene, we want to think about what do we know that's protective um, so that we can go back and trying to foster the resilience. What's going well for a kid? What has gotten them through tough times? What strategies are they using to cope? Whether they're good or bad, just understanding what they're doing is helpful to us. Can we reduce their vulnerability? Can we intervene early and stop whatever harm is happening? Can we address any known risk factors and reduce triggers for kids and families in their environments? Can we improve cultural community connections or spiritual practices that might make things better? Can we promote safety through predictability and consistency? And that's where you see these trauma-informed pra trauma practice components come back again. We promote safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration. We involve people in the planning of their own services. We validate and affirm past experiences. So uh, this is just blatant copyright disregard from the internet, but 
Um, I just saw these two little cartoons, which I think is sweet, this very broken heart being trying to fix with a welding mask and everything. This is really hard. It is. And this little guy giving up his broken heart. It ain't much, but it's all I've got. And the caregiver's saying, that's all I've really ever wanted. I'll take all of you. It's never too late to repair. So what we're seeing with trauma-informed care is this fundamental shift. We now say, we don't say what's wrong with you. We want to know what has happened to you. And how can my understanding of what has happened to you make me a better caregiver for you? And here is a piece of artwork by Bev Doolittle. All of her art is landscape-oriented. And then it has images. And that's see. Oh, look at this. OK. I can't do it everywhere. But can you see these faces? Here's one. There's faces in the ground. Here's one. There's, uh, oh, now I can't see them. Here's one. Here's one in the trees. Here's another one over here. If I let you look long enough, you'll find something like 187 of them or something. But now that you've seen them, can you pretend they're not there? Now that I've pointed out that you can see, this is to me what it means to be trauma-informed. We can see what we didn't before, and then we can respond accordingly and provide the services that we uh, need to. So when we think of out-of-home care, traditionally has been a place of safety. So largely developed under the auspices of child protection systems with this goal of safeguarding children deemed to be at risk who had to be removed from their families for whatever reason. But it's long seen as a last resort, and it's not the safe haven required for optimal healing and transition into adulthood that we would like to see uh, all the time. Uh, don't get me wrong, there are situations where children do very well in out-of-home care. Um, but what you'd really like to see is out-of-home care being a temporary healing place so that kids can go back to their families. We know that safety is no small task, that children residing in out-of-home care environments have typically experienced a chronic lack of safety in their lives prior to coming into care. Um, we know that certainly the majority of children and youth in any out-of-home care setting uh, have been faced with adversity and child maltreatment. And because they have all those uh, significant early trauma experiences, they have lower outcome rates in terms of how well they do there. They also are more likely to experience additional adversity within the settings themselves, um, either from other kids or, or staff, and a general lack of a sense of social safety for them. So how does trauma impact on relationships, this piece around social safety? It's the ways in which individuals process social information and their perceptions of the intentions of others. So if they experience difficulties in accurate perception and they interpret benign acts as being bad, like as people have negative, so I see uh, you're not looking at me and that's because you hate me, as opposed to uh, that you're distracted or you don't know that I'm there. And if I have that thought, then I'm going to have a maladaptive response to you, such as withdrawal, aggression, or violence in an effort to protect myself from what I see as your behavior that might harm me, all in the context of the relationship. 
What this looks like in these kids' minds is that they decode the interaction based on how they interpret the information provided by the other. And in this case, we have a risk of misappraisal. They make a decision about what's happening between themselves and someone else, and then hostile, they see it as hostile towards them. They evaluate their options for responding, and then they generally pick one, fight or flight, avoidance or regression. They then monitor themselves. Do I feel good? Do I feel better? Success or failure? And then this may result in a reduced ability to generate and uh, have socially competent responses and build good, positive social interactions. We've all seen kids do this. We've all seen kids who struggle. And you think, oh, that other child was just trying to be friendly. So what do we need to focus on? Trust, because these kids need to be able to feel like others aren't always going to hurt them or betray them. Self-esteem, which is why they judge themselves as not worthy or feeling like other people don't like them. Power and control, we want to give them the ability to make safe choices, but this is also where we see kids who want to have a lot of power and control in their environments um, because it makes them feel safer. And all of these observations are consistent with that concept of trauma-informed care. At the end of the day, if protection trumps connection, an individual is so dysregulated and defensive that they can't read the safety cues, even if they're there, it might even be impossible for them to process that, uh, what's happening for them. If they're constantly coming into relationships, evaluating the environment, and they're often incorrect, then how will they be able to sense whether or not they're safe or not? Safety itself can only be reached through successful social relationships in which that act of co-regulation occurs. And many of these kids are missing that opportunity, which is why they've learned that relationships are risky. And they've learned them because they found themselves living in an out-of-home care experience largely because of relationship problems, theirs or their caregivers. Yet relationships remain their vehicle for intervention and change. Far from being the intervention, relationships have cemented considerable disturbance and fear for young people, often with very good reason and considered a risk factor. If we think about kids who've been uh, trafficked, human trafficking or anything like that. So we know that the need for safety is universal, but the experience of safety is not. And often our misunderstanding of the role of safety is based on an assumption that we think we know what safety means for everyone that we're working with. The concept of safety is complex, I hope I've gotten that across, and that it's critical to engage children and youth in care in the process of understanding what safety means to them. Remember how I began this talk, asking you to reflect on what safety means to you? When we think about what's, so we actually, well, I didn't do this, but Moore et al. in 2018 actually went and talked to kids in care, and they told us they want their environments to feel like home. They want positive relationships to be created and facilitated. They want stability and predictability. And consistent with what we know about trauma-informed care, they wanted control over their own space and some say in their everyday living environments. They wanted to be asked about their feelings of safety and help to develop coping and self-protection skills, which are all 
developmental, and relational. When you think about what these kids were asking for, one can't help but reflect on these requests as part of an obvious continuum of unmet developmental needs. These are what all kids get in a healthy, intact family that is um, helping kids talk about all of that regulation. Um, needs that are only met through cons uh, consistency and structure in caregiving. So as I'm beginning to wrap up, we've often gone to, uh, for kids, for example, who've been exposed to domestic violence or sexual abuse, some of our interventions have been about <coughs> developing safety vocabulary, what's it mean, how do we talk about how our bodies feel, teaching uh, that awareness, concrete strategies for safety planning, how, you know, can you write all the people on your hand that are safe to go to? Can you call 911? And from that, the hope is that we develop some sense of safety efficacy in that uh, I'm capable of recognizing when I'm in danger and coping in some way, either asking for help or reaching out. But here's the concern, is that many of the children who we've done this level of research and work with are presumably in safe they're in somewhat safe environments at the time that the intervention occurs, and they might actually be able to differentiate between feeling safe and not feeling safe. But what of children in care who may not only lack a safety vocabulary already, but perhaps even the required environment for that vocabulary to be meaningful? So what you see is this paradox, as I said, of safety that it exists when individuals create and participate in actions and environments that both promote or remove safety. So we see this. Safety is compromised sometimes with an inter intervention itself when we strictly enforce rules that create power dynamics that make kids feel like they're out of control or make them worry that they're going to get in trouble. Uh, we have a system of care where we watch or surveil uh, kids that we're particularly worried about. and. So it's designed to generate safety, obviously, um, but it also generates a lack of safety for those kids at the same time, because it robs them of privacy and it creates anxiety around getting in trouble, uh, even from family visits or getting kicked out of programs. A lot of kids will talk about, I'm worried I'm gonna get kicked out, I'm worried my foster family's gonna get rid of me because I got in trouble at school, those kinds of things. So what we really want to see is that perhaps the feeling of being safe is the intervention goal itself. And that we need to know um, what kids need in order to feel safe so that we can meet those needs and to help children navigate and negotiate their own safety so that they're not always misperceiving. There have been a number of safety components that have been looked at in the literature. Physical safety seems uh, and what you'll see is I've put on here a deficit model as well as a how do we, there's always deficit and then the additional model. So this is what you shouldn't have, but what could you have? So we want to encourage nonviolence and safe, reliable relationships. We want to encourage self-efficacy and self-esteem and self-control. We want to encourage compassion and tolerance and self-awareness. We want to encourage interaction, safe boundaries and security for kids. And we want to recognize the importance of culture and acknowledge historical harms and engage in culturally relevant healing processes um, that uh, create community connections. So in closing, relationships matter. 
neural pathways are created from these social interact. They're actually, this is what happens in the brain. We need relationships. We need social engagement. Uh, the literature overwhelmingly privileges relationship between children and youth and their caregivers to be the most important component of a safe environment. And what I'm hoping my panel will talk a little bit, it's not my panel, the panel will talk about as we're done, is that this need for safe, appropriate relationships characterized by trust, reliability, and the ability to maintain proper boundaries may continue to provide safety long after children have left the system of care that provided some of that experience for them. So when we look at this, we know that if we are putting appropriate caregiver relationships at the center of our work, we can foster resilience through relationships because resilience only comes from the experience of adversity in the first place. So if the child has experienced significant threat, that's adversity. Those are ruptures, conflict, critical incidents. Those happen. Navigation is how we help kids get through using internal, external resources, problem solving, repair. How can I make, how can I say I'm sorry? How can I make that person like me again? How can I feel okay again? And then getting a positive outcome is what success is. And that creates adaptation and learning and growth. At the end of the day, when young people feel that they're adults who can protect and take care of them, they learn to look up. And that's what we're doing here. And literally, many of you are doing it right now. But anyway, lo looking up. So I just wanted to say thank you. Uh, that's, that's the end of my talk. Thank you so much, Dr. Angelique Jenny. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask you to take a seat on the panel. And uh, someone I'm hoping is going to move this. <laughs> Thank you so much um, so that we can see. And uh, you gave us a lot to think about. Um, and, um, and it's certainly, it's a complex area. And one of the things that we're really hoping to accomplish with this panel discussion is that we get to see those things in action, um, uh, in uh, real situations from different perspectives. And, um, and the fact is, is that, um, that it is so complex and there is no one situation. Uh, they're not the same. They're all individual and unique. That's exactly right. So, um, uh, so we are very fortunate. We have two brave people who are going to begin our panel. They're both foster parents um, and, um, and they bring different perspectives uh, to the panel. So. Um, I'm going to begin by inviting our first panelist. Her name is Deanna Morrison, um, and she comes to us with her lived experience. She's, Deanna says that she always knew she wanted to adopt. Born and raised in rural Saskatchewan, she married a military man, and um, she became an instant mom to his three biological children. This is a very brave woman. Um, then they adopted four more children, and now they have nine. They're age three through 22. I admire you, Deanna. Thank you so much for being on the panel. Thank um, you. So, so your journey really um, began nine years ago with, uh, with a, a baby. Can you tell us a bit about what that looked like? Why? Well, How that yeah. started? I guess we got into it for adoption. And yeah. so she was two when she came to us. Yeah. And... Yes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then how, so you were only planning on doing that. You weren't planning on doing more. 
We were just planning on the one adoption. Yeah, yeah. So what happened? Well, we fell in love with it and fell in love with her and knew that once her adoption was complete that we still felt like we could handle more. Yeah. I didn't think it would be that much more. four at this right. point. Right, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we waited a few more, I guess it was a year after her adoption was finalized and yeah. thought we were gonna go into it slow. So we got uh, a night call for a little baby that they said was just going to stay for the weekend. Yeah. And we thought, okay, we can do that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a month later, his two older brothers came into care and they were adopted in 2018. So, wow, yeah. it was a long adoption process yes. and, and that was something you had to really think about. That's, yeah, we that's had a, lots of hurdles, lots of different turnover of workers, and so it was almost five years to complete. To complete, wow, mm -hmm. and then you did it again. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what happened? Uh, we actually did respite for another foster family, and it turned into a placement breakdown. And just when we thought we were done, he definitely opened our eyes and well, my husband, he had just deployed a month prior, so he didn't get to meet him. He so went kind to Iraq? <laughs> it was my, uh, my call there, and we fell in love with him, and he fit just perfectly in our family. Wow. And then we found out he had another sister that was in a medical home, and when she was cleared, she was, came to our house as well. Wow, that's quite the family. That's, that's quite, you know, especially, you know, when we're talking about informed trauma, that, that um, you know, that hasn't been an easy process for you. No. For anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Every child has their different, different yeah. type of trauma. Yeah. So what kinds of things have you experienced? Oh, well, going back to our first adoption, mm -hmm. she was in a home from four months to two years and there was really no, no one caregiver for her. Mm -hmm. And so what we thought would be kind of a hard transition, uh, usually at that age they do pre-placement visits. Mm -hmm. And with her it was, uh, it was kind of a bad ending to the foster home. Yeah. And so they were, it was a quick move. So she, we got the call on a Monday, she came on a Thursday and that was it. So there was no tears for anybody at two years old. She never called out for anybody. Yeah. So we knew that there wasn't an attachment piece. Wow. But she, the honeymoon phase never ended with her. So it just kept, she fit right in. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, but that experience changed as well as you, as with your other children. Yeah, so with our baby, he, uh, I guess he was apprehended because he was two months old and um, he was placed with someone who couldn't care for him. It was a friend of uh, the biological father's, mm -hmm. but no diaper bag, no formula, and so someone called on him and yeah, we weren't set up for a baby, so it was a nine o'clock at night call and so my oh. husband drove around the parking lot at Walmart while I was in Walmart and at that time it was open 24 hours so <laughs> I was in there a while but 
Did you know what you were getting yourself into? You know, at the time, we were excited and nervous, yeah. and, but knew that it would work out. Now, you have employed some strategies because it's not an easy system to navigate. Um, how many people here have had to navigate the system? Yeah, oh, okay. So not an easy system to navigate. Um, and, uh, and you um, started taking some things into your own hands. I did. Um, with our boys, it was a new worker that came on. So he was overwhelmed to begin with. And yeah. so I kind of maybe took charge a little bit and let him know when he needed to come mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. made sure he set up his monthly visits to see the kids and yeah. if there was any supports they needed. I kind of advocated that for them, and I wasn't afraid to be the squeaky wheel, as they call it. Yeah. 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 What did you do to make the kids feel safe? I guess we don't treat anyone any differently, so uh, just lots of love and lots of security and lots of structure. I think structure helps them kind of gel into a routine and kind of settle a little bit. Mm -hmm. Our oldest of our three boys mm -hmm. was definitely a caregiver role. And mm -hmm. so breaking that to let him be a kid again, mm -hmm. uh, it did take you know almost two years for him to let up on some of those roles that mm -hmm. there's adults there to handle it now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So lots of patience. <laughs> lots of patience. Um, we're going to come back okay. to, uh, to some parts of your story a little bit later. I want to introduce <clears throat> our next panelist, who's also a foster parent, Renee Rajat. Uh, will you join us on the panel, please? Um, he was raised on a farm and introduced to fostering at a young age. He and his wife raised five of their own children on their own family farm, but they wanted to give back, so they started fostering more children. Um, they have been fostering now for 29 years. Uh, many of those children, they're very proud to say, call them mom and dad to this day. Um, Rene is passionate about fostering. He is the vice president of the board of AFCA, or the Alberta Foster and Kinship Association. And that's a nonprofit uh, charitable organization that provides support, advocacy, training, and education about foster and kinship care. Thank you so much, Renee, for being on the panel. Oh, thank you for asking me to come. 29 years, holy cow. I mean. Um, you talked about, um, uh, about how you were exposed to fostering at a young age and that you wanted to give back. What, is, what did that look like? You know, at the time, I, I, you know, I didn't really think about it because um, back then we uh, were in a fairly small community. My, yeah. my two uncles, our family was really close, so we farmed within a mile of each other and we had another neighbor. And my one aunt had foster children and, and the one neighbor did. And, we would always ride our bikes together and, and get together and, and play together. So we didn't look at each other as any different as my cousins because there was lots of cousins that played together too. So mm -hmm. they, were, they were our cousins was basically what it was. So, and uh, as we grew older, like, you know, I, I, uh, we farmed for a while and I, we got married and we had some of our own children. We uh, was just, we'd built a house and it was just when we were just talking one day and we decided, you know, I think we should uh, 
foster brings children into our home. And, and it was really the best thing we ever did uh, for our family. Um, Why? It, it taught uh, lots of trials and tribulations. You know, I can, I can see what you're saying. And yeah. it brought back memories to me of some of the kids that come into our home. Uh, we had a little girl that came into our home that was yeah. uh, uh, terminally ill. And uh, we raised her. And uh, yeah. lots of trips back to Edmonton. And we, I remember taking her back to the, to the university. And um, she, her, her head, when we took it, was really swollen up. And all the swelling had gone down. And um, they uh, looked at her, and her cancer had gone down to the size of a pinhead. And they wanted the child to go home. And we really fought for her to stay in our home because we knew what home life was going to be like. Not that we didn't want her to have mom and dad, but we just wanted mom and dad to get help. And um, she went back home, and she passed away three months later. Mm-hmm. And it was so traumatic to our family that it was really tough. But just, it, you know, it brought back to us, too. I mean, I don't blame mom and dad either, because they were from that. It just was all from, they were brought up the same way. But it just showed what uh, love can do for children and care and stuff like that. And we actually still have a picture of her in our fridge at home. Yeah, so, yeah. So it, it, uh, we've had uh, some tough children and, and uh, it's been, uh, for our own children, uh, our, we always, we didn't to start with, but afterwards, our older, our own children are older than the foster children, because it's like that's who kids look up to is the older children. So we had they're kind of our little spies <laughs> when we were raising these children, and it worked out really well. It's, so, for the most part, it was really good, and uh, our our own children are very passionate to this day. Like mm-hmm. they're very uh, compassionate. They just. Uh, they go out of their way to help kids at school and stuff like that. So it's kind of neat to see. And they're all growing up now. They're, I think the youngest one is 21 and the oldest is 39. And uh, I, I almost think some of them may foster at some point in their life also. Wow. You fostered 40 kids, yeah. approximately. Approximately, yeah. We had long-term children. So at some points we had uh, sibling groups, which we always yeah. were really wanted the kids to be together. And... Uh, it was tough because uh, sometimes the older children that came back into our home, it just really changed the dynamics. Of, you know, there was three instead of two, and so it's pulling between our own children. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, those situations were tough. We, we still, some of our toughest kids mm-hmm. have come back and seen us um, and thanked us. So it's, it's one child we actually kicked out of the house because there was no drugs in our home. And that was a thing when we brought come into the home. He was 11 years old, and we said, you know, these are the rules. And it was the hardest thing. Um, I was sort of the easier one in the family. My wife was the tougher one. <laughs> and uh, he had broke the rules, so he got asked to leave. And it was yeah. uh, it was the worst day of my life. I can still remember. He tracked us down about eight years later, and said that was the best thing we could have ever done. He says, I, I taught me what rules were. Right, when mm-hmm. somebody says something that had to abide by it. And he's doing very well today, very, he got into construction, is doing very well today, and, and see him all the time, yeah. What, what made you get involved um, in the organization to help um, other families? We went to, they have a conference every year, and 
and we had been fostering for about 10 years, maybe not quite that long, but I got asked to go to the, have an annual yeah. conference yeah. and where they give uh, courses on, on teaching us how to raise these children, what to do. And, yeah. and so I got involved in that a little bit. Then, and about two years, I've been there two years, they asked me to come and sit on the board. There was nobody representing us in our area. And it was, it was a scary thing for me, sort of, because I was still fairly young, but I, was, I really wanted to help foster care. And not just in Alberta, but across Canada. I don't care. I mean, I'm such an advocate of foster care because it's such a, a wonderful thing. And there's not always beautiful stories. Yeah. But it's, uh, it gives these kids a chance to be able to live in a home and not a, you know, a whatever, uh, group home or whatever other things there is out there. And so I took it on and I, I've, uh, I, worry, I worry about foster care, having foster parents in the future just because uh, our world is changing so much that, you know, we mm -hmm. don't have that same uh, yeah. caring atmosphere, I think, as, as there used to be as, you know, watch out for your neighbor. and. And that giving atmosphere too, right? That there used to be. It's more about myself, I think, today than. And maybe I'm wrong, but I just feel like as I progress through and, and dealing with uh, the FKA, yeah. there's some things that I, I worry about. I want to talk about the FKA a little bit later because okay. uh, I want to talk about some of the learning experiences because you've had an opportunity to see a lot of other situations, not yes. just be in it. Um, but I, first I want to um, invite uh, Carrie Avenduti to our panel. I'm just delighted that she can join us um, here. Uh, I'm a big fan of Carrie's. Um, she's a project manager for the First Nation team at CASA Child, Adolescent and Family Mental Health. Um, this is a program that was created by Carrie and her team to engage in collaborations and partnerships with First Nations in the Edmonton area to provide direct uh, mental health support and services to First Nations communities. Carrie also trained as a social worker and she's a proud member of the Alexander First Nation. She's a staunch advocate for the Indigenous voice in modern day health and wellness programming and I would say just generally all around. Thank you so much for being on the panel today, Carrie. Thank you. Um, First of all, I just want to talk about your own personal experience. Let's talk about your experience with foster care. Um, and, um, and, you know, because you've been a foster parent as well. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, I, what was that foster experience? Yeah. Was, I started out as a kinship care home. One of my uh, cousins and yeah. his wife were unable to take care of their kids and asked my husband and I if we would consider taking their daughter in, you know, while they did their uh, addictions treatment programming. Um, when we did that, it opened the door to, to foster care for, mm -hmm. you know, the workers in the area and they um, very quickly identified in the middle of the night, can you take this sibling group in, there's in no place for them to, to go and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, you, you just do it because, you know, you hear this story at, you know, nine o'clock at night and you bring them in and so it was, it was, um, a real learning experience for me. We had our own daughter. She was uh, four at the time. Uh, the baby we took in was six months at the time. And so we took in a sibling group of a, a nine, an eight, and a six-year-old boy. And they all had severely high needs from medical issues to uh, being in, in, in a wheelchair and things we had no experience with. So 
Um, this happens a lot in our indigenous communities where um, somebody has a stable enough home, uh, they tend to uh, um, load them up and, and then burn them out really quickly. And, and uh, because we've been so severely underfunded in terms of uh, support and programming, um, we don't get a lot of training mm -hmm. in, in you know, this area of trauma and, and what we're dealing with. So we experienced a lot of acting out. I was a young mom. Um, I was, you know, 24, 25 at the time. And so yeah. knowing how to handle these kind of behaviors yeah. was just way out of my league. And I um, had to learn a lot. So um, it, was, uh, it was a scary experience as well because I have this four-year-old child and I have to yeah. protect her as well. And it, it became a bit of a dangerous situation. You had to have all eyes all the time because the kids just really had grown up in the system and you know just had their safety had was evaporated they just acted out and so it was it was a learning experience for me and it took um, I, I used that to kind of catapult this idea of I need to understand parenting I need to understand why these kids are doing this and you know leads into education and experience right so um, yeah it's um, so one of the things that um, that's huge about this whole area is the fact that um, you know indigenous population is six to seven percent of the population general population and yet the number of kids involved in foster care who end up in foster care it's about seventy to eighty percent of kids are indigenous so it's you know it's it's um, it's something to really when, when you talk about trauma. Uh, Carrie, one of the things that, that you brought up when we were having our discussion um, earlier this evening is about what that trauma looks like mm -hmm. uh, and, and what you experienced mm -hmm. with, with trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about what that, you know? Sure, and I, I think it, it yeah. takes a bit of um, kind of setting the stage. Yeah. Um, the idea of, of you know, I, we met earlier and yeah. I, I fully appreciate the panel and their perspective, but you know, from the indigenous perspective, um, this whole idea of removing children, apprehending children from our communities and putting them into non-indigenous foster homes is just more of the forced assimilation that our people have experienced mm -hmm. over this past you know, 150, 200 years. And so we have to take a little bit of a different lens on what that looks like for us. Um, you know, these kids are coming um, out of out of homes and and the experience that we have, you know, I grew up in the Alexander First Nation and and uh, you know residential schools was a little before my time, but it quickly morphed into the '60s scoop and the using of these schools, these uh, as child welfare, you know, placements for families, and in our communities at that time, it wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a lot necessary for for them to apprehend children out of homes. You could, you know, they could pretty much make that choice and walk into homes. So parents were very protective and, and it was a scary kind of time and, and, you know, not a lot of vehicles on the reserve. So if you heard a vehicle coming down the road, there was this automatic freeze, like, mm -hmm. okay, everybody hide. And, you know, the kids would all dive under beds. And, you know, so we, we grew up with a healthy sense of fear about strangers and, and especially the police because you know, we saw neighbors and friends and family and kids who would literally just be kind of picked up and taken off to foster care, and which wasn't foster care, which was residential schools and yeah. 
you know, to hold in placement. And, and so the experience of that just has, has the intergenerational trauma, the impact of that on families, yeah. um, that they're just interrupted in their, in their language of love, interrupted in their parenting skills because they were never able to, you know, pass that on to their children. And so we're left with this idea that even at present, the, the modern day foster care system is still oppressing our children. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of kids in care who are not getting the opportunity to be on the land and learning tradition and culture and customs and their identity. So it's just another generation of children and, and who are not being raised uh, in our country, not allowing them to be raised as indigenous people and be proud of, of that heritage and that culture. And yet, uh, you know, these are also, I mean, the thing that I've experienced with, uh, with the two of you, but also with other foster parents I know, is that, that uh, uh, seeing children in very, very difficult situations and, and wanting to give them love and grounding and uh, an opportunity that, that um, you know, that children need. Um, and, and you've kind of take extraordinary measures that way to make sure that, you know, what, to what Carrie's referring to. Right. I think foster parents need to take a step further. Yeah. Like, we're, we're kind of asked to give a culture plan, but um, I don't think, th there's not a lot of foster parents doing it. Mm -hmm. I think for myself personally, we go out to the reserve twice, sometimes three times a week. Mm -hmm. So we're attending Cree classes and my children are quite young from their reserve, but we're going just to be in the community. The community is getting to know them, family, extended families, getting to know them. We've been going, well, for over two years and we're still meeting new people, new family members that are now stepping forward. So building that relationships, it kind of helps the social workers out too, because there's not a lot, there's that stigma where they want to stay away from the social workers and not, uh, not inquire about their children or inquire about their grandchildren. And so I'm trying to break that barrier. So just to be clear, Deanna, uh, all five of her, her kids are uh, indigenous. And, and um, did you have, you had a large percentage as well of your I, kids I, or? I, no, actually we didn't. But you didn't? No, our last, our last uh, child we have yeah. was indigenous. Yeah. And it was an amazing thing for us because we took them to powwows and things like that. So I learned so much about the indigenous culture that it was, yeah, it was, it was really nice to be there. Mm -hmm. I, they've, they've welcomed us. And so he still lives with us to this day, and we still go visit with uh, uh, the people on, like some of his relatives. He doesn't have. We're, we're tracking down more and more. So, but uh, so he's not living in our home. He lives with my son. Mm -hmm. Him and my son had a really good relationship, and uh, yeah. So. So um, uh, then, when you talk about. Uh, you had some incredible stories, some incredibly sad stories, some incredibly tough stories, but at the same time, some very rewarding stories. What did those look like for you? You know, at the time, you're, you know, you're dealing with so much that um, when I look back, you know, when we look back over the years when we had these children in our home, 
um, there was a lot of tough decisions to make and, and it was about the safety of the child also. So we tried to work with, with, the, with the moms and the dads and th there was, you know, maybe half of the children got to go back home, but it was, you know, and I guess it's easy for us to, to say what's less, um, what's not a good home, what is a good home, mm -hmm. right? In, in my eyes and in your eyes, everybody's got a different view. And like we talked a little bit earlier, just because you have five children in one bedroom doesn't mean that it's a bad home. Mm -hmm. I know my own home, we had three in one bedroom. <laughs> so, and they still remember great stories about that. So, um, I think the biggest thing that, that uh, has made me feel, because we don't foster anymore, um, is the children that have come back to our house and have actually seen and, and visit with us and it's been very overwhelming. How long, um, how long generally did kids stay with you? Um, I would say they were uh, initially, like for the, when we first started fostering, it was about three to four years and we were the same thing, they were just going to be overnight. There, we just had to be a placement overnight, then it was five yeah. days and then it got to be years. And we were okay with that because then we, because we didn't want to leave, the, we didn't want the kids to go home. Yeah. Right, I mean, we want them to go home, but you have an attachment for them, right? And so, I mean, it was always a ha happy day when they did get to go back home, but it was a sad day also. And uh, yeah, so, and and then the, and towards the last part of our fostering, they were there with uh, about uh, seven to 10 years, the later ones. And they're probably more in our lives now than, than the ones that were there a little bit earlier on. That, uh, yeah, there's a sibling group and still still struggling to, to this day, wow. you know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, we're there, there to try to support them as much as we can with, with whatever they need and, and... So it's something that continues. It's not something once they leave that they're gone and they're completely out of your life. No, no. And it's kind of interesting because a lot of them are with mom and dad yeah. to this day, but they've, they've sort of, like they're on, some of them are the mom and dad. Yeah. In, in the family, like they, they're helping mom and dad, or mom mostly, cope with life and get through life. So it's, yeah. Is this, um, is this usual? Is this usual in, in, in foster care? Do people have long-term relationships with their families or do they bounce around from family to family to family? I think it depends on the foster home. Yes. Right? Like, yeah. the more stable and consistent the as you're seeing yeah. that this pattern, and we, we yeah. do hear this from kids who go back to the same home, or they, or even child protection workers who receive um, Christmas cards every year from a kid, because even though the kid bounced around, they had the same worker. Yeah. That doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, yeah. it really, you know, it's interesting to me that the system is set up the way it is, because yeah. everything we know about kids' well-being is based on relationship. And so you really would want the kid to have the same worker and to have the same, as long as it's a positive placement, mm -hmm. even if they can go back and forth from that placement back to their home, back to the, because it sounds like some of your kids do that, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. even, they've gone back home, but they still reach out to you yeah. when they need an extra yeah. parent. Because there think, can never be too many adults who oh, care about a kid. Right? And I think it doesn't those, have to be that yeah. way. I think when those things break down is when 
the social worker does change. Like it's, they do get bounced around. I think that's, that's when it's really tough. What does that do to, what does that do to a kid? I can't imagine. Well, it interferes in the ability to make those relationships that are required for that sense of safety and stability and consistency, right? So the more often it happens, the less likely they are to maintain a relationship with anyone or to develop that skill set, right? And then you get what we say, you know, are saying these are hard to house kids because they immediately act out. I think I've, yeah, they immediately act out in order to break the placement down because it's just too upsetting to get your hopes up Mm -hmm. that you're going to stay somewhere, right? And maybe I think you could give examples of the kids when they come in. You had this honeymoon situation where the child had a negative placement and couldn't wait to try to create a family for themselves. Mm -hmm. But you'll find other kids who want to put you through every test Mm -hmm. to see whether you're going to be the caregiver that sticks. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. I, uh, I turned around when you were talking about trauma. I turned around and said, you know, did you see that with your baby? Mm-hmm. And uh, it can happen. I still do, yeah. Even years. I, we had one who he had hoarding issues. Mm-hmm. And even with structure and routine and knowing the fruit bowl is full and there's food in the cupboard and in the fridge, they still sometimes will eat till they're sick, no shut off. And that's, well, our oldest of the three boys is 11. Mm-hmm. And sometimes still. we have to remind him, just take, take a few minutes <laughs> yeah. and see if you're full. Because sometimes he still doesn't know. It used to be quite bad, but over the years it's gotten better. But there's still the odd, odd day that I'll see it. Yeah. Probably caused by stress. Yeah. Right. Like when he's feeling, yeah. he would he would use the food to create that sense that of security. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, what about um, uh, what have you heard about with Indigenous kids who are are in white homes, and uh, and that you know. Uh, when they're when they don't have the exposure to be mm-hmm. able to uh, to go back and and um, learn about their culture or get connected a bit with family and where they come from, what does that do to their sense of identity? Again, I think it's really you know multifaceted because you know be, prior to. Um, 2014, I think it was, mm-hmm. you know, the Prime Minister of Canada stood up in front of Canada and said, we apologize. We, this is the truth. We did do this. We had policies to assimilate children, residential schools, 60 scoop, and ongoing assimilation tactics. And uh, it was the first time in our history as Indigenous people we got to live in the truth. And so while I think it's, it's wonderful that we have foster parents who, who truly do care and are trying their best, what we get to see in the community are kids who come home at 18 years old and are searching for that identity mm-hmm. and that loss of connection because they also get to learn the truth of, of you know, maybe why they were apprehended or brought into care. Um, that might not have been under the best circumstances. So having been denied you know, 18 years of connection to family and uh, what the circumstances surrounding you know, their 
placement and what and and then to learn you know that just that um, inequity that exists for programming within our communities you know the the government in Canada hasn't uh, given uh, First Nation communities a increase in, in budget since I want to say 1983 and all they've done is just taken you know the budget they have and they move it so if all of a sudden child welfare becomes important well then they're going to take it from infrastructure which means housing goes down or they're going to take it you know and they just kind of move it around within you know the department of indian affairs and and a lot money to address an issue but then the inequity in another place starts to create more problems right so we've never had an equitable structure. I mean, the, um, the Auditor General report has proven that you know, First Nation communities are seriously underfunded uh, in health, education, and social services. And, and um, so we're, we're trying to, you know, I, I show people, this is, it's not that we're not capable of taking care of our kids, but we've never had the opportunity to heal from the trauma and we've never had the opportunity to create programming that that works at um, from apprehension to prevention mm -hmm. so that we're creating programs in the community that focuses on creating teen programming family you know um, intervention and, and programming alcohol and drug addiction programming mm -hmm. in our own communities mm -hmm. done in a traditional cultural way you know, I really love my work with CASA because CASA embraced that idea. They said, we want you to go to indigenous communities because while we have thousands of years experience in our organization in this idea of westernized medicine, we recognize that indigenous populations have thousands of years experience in mental health for, you know, in, in their own ways. And how do we bridge that? How do we bring that together? And that's what we've been attempting to do in our work is, you know, we don't want to go and provide uh, traditional, you know, therapeutic processes like mm -hmm. it's been in, in our communities for a long time. We want the communities to tell us, what do you need? Mm -hmm. How do you see this? And, and even, you know, it, it's a little bit, you know, um, new to them too to say, well, we want to know what are, what are your sweat lodges? What, you know, who are the, uh, are the champions and, 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 the, and the wellness workers and the helpers? Who can help bridge this, you know, uh, wellness opportunity mm -hmm. with these with these families? Mm -hmm. And it really has to be in a family context. You know, you could we can never take a kid and make them well without working with that entire family system. And in our case, with that community that surrounds that family system, right? So, how are things mm -hmm. going to change with the new legislation? What does that look like? I mean, if mm -hmm. there's not an increase in funding and there's more mm -hmm. responsibility. Uh, there's, because I know that there's a lot of concern around, you know, what's going to happen to these kids mm -hmm. if, you know, if they're they're taken away from foster families or or how they're going to be integrated back uh, into Indigenous communities, back into their culture. Um, you know, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. well, I don't think we know. I think yeah. you know, it's the first time it's been put on our plates to be able to. Even start to think about it. Um, you know, there's a couple communities, one in Saskatchewan, and I just learned yeah. of, of uh, our local community here in Enoch is looking into it. And a lot of communities are looking into how do we embrace C92, which of course is a new legislation that is giving the authority and the autonomy back to First Nations for the care of the Indigenous children. And so it's it's incumbent now upon the communities to create a program. Uh, 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 
I don't call it a program, but a framework of what that's going to look like and how they'll implement that back in their own communities. Um, and everyone is unique, and I think Jody Wilson-Raybould has said that over and over again, dismantling the Indian Act doesn't mean taking one blanket uh, piece of legislation. It means sitting with every 563 First Nations across Canada mm -hmm. and seeing what that looks like in their, in their community. And that's pretty much the same about child welfare. It's going to look different in Alexander than it's going to look in Enoch, and it's going to look different in every you know, First Nations across Canada. So we have um, social workers, teachers, um, people in the audience who are dealing, you know, have uh, or have kids, um, and maybe they've got a kid who's acting out in the classroom, or they've got um, kids who are exhibiting different kinds of, of behavior. Um, parents, you know, when you are a foster parent, when you have a, a kid in your you know, your family, you know that kid in many ways. You're that, that first front line to those children. Um, what can you say to kind of help give some advice or some perspective or some understanding from what you've seen with your own kids? I, I know you're going through assessment and you've got, <laughs> Deanna, you know, you've got some of your own unique challenges. Right, so it's yeah. more or less first getting that social worker on board. Yeah. Um, because sadly they do just want to put a band-aid on it and say it's all good. So getting the social worker and the supervisor and then there is a nurse actually within social, social services because um, even if you seek out uh, different therapies or go to a behavioral, uh, behavioralist doctor and they write up a prescription you're still fighting the system to, I guess, attest to what the doctor is saying. They still would like to, I guess, debunk it and more, yeah. So are we talking about assessments or, or, or kids who are dealing with ADHD, yeah. FASD, um, you know, those kinds of things? Because that's quite high, isn't it, for kids in foster care? I think so. From and your experience? Not that you want to put labels. It's really high. Yeah. Would you not say? Well, we, of course, have an indigenous lens. We take a different tact with that. Yeah. It's also been a, you know, a tool that has kept our kids in care, right? And, and yeah. the assessment tools are not modified yes. to really assess the trauma and the impact that indigenous children have gone through. It doesn't take that into consideration. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a system that we're you know, highly supportive of. We recognize that, and it wasn't so for Indigenous kids. For non-Indigenous kids, getting your assessments done meant that you were getting extra funding to go along with that in school. Well, that wasn't so for Indigenous communities on reserve you know, schooling. So it, it's starting to now. I mean, we're, they're starting, if you have an, um, kids who are diagnosed and need you know, special supports, then we can start to access more funding to be able to support that kind of programming. Um, but no, I, I, I think um, we have to look at the tools that are assessing these kids and we have to look at them through a trauma-informed lens mm -hmm. and we have to apply them differently. Mm -hmm. yeah. But even to get the assessment. Well, right. And I would just say that, that not all assessments are created equal in the yeah. sense of um, there are good assessments and bad assessments yeah. out there. There are assessments that take 15 minutes and get and get a prescription, right? And there's bad and assessors and good assessors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's sort of what I meant. Yeah. Excusing an assessment as the, <laughs> but the way in which 
you can uh, over-medicate a kid to um, change a behavior that actually has its roots in trauma and is actually functional for that child in some way. And again, this idea of focusing on removing a behavior before you understand what the purpose of that behavior has been for that child. Certainly we saw patterns of children being overdiagnosed with ADHD who were being exposed to violence in their homes, which made them more uh, hypervigilant and unable to concentrate in other settings. Um, and so it's the way in which we don't get the whole picture sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, A lot of the kids have lots of anxiety and mm. those symptoms kind of Doctors just want to say ADHD, but it's right, actually but it's anxiety. anxiety. It is anxiety. From, yeah. And it's normal. Yeah. And it's normal. It's mm -hmm. a normal response to mm -hmm. uh, an unsafe environment. Mm -hmm. it's, an, it's in fact that behavior has made that child safer. Mm -hmm. So as a foster parent, as a teacher, as a social worker, as anyone who is dealing you know, with, with foster kids, if you don't know where they've come from and what they've experienced, how do you keep them safe? How do you help them? How do you change or I, what does that look like? For myself, I guess giving them sense of security, even as a, a baby, right? It goes mm -hmm. all the way up as the structure and love and compassion and lots of patience. For me, I just felt like the, lot, the more the kids were in our home, yeah. you actually got to work with the kids more and, and really understood what their needs really were. Mm -hmm. And lots of times, like you get these diagnoses and like you just, you had to fight for the kids that mm -hmm. some of these diagnoses were not right. Mm -hmm. And it's tough sometimes, yeah. Well, I, I think the um, presentation that we had speaks yeah. to so much of it, mm -hmm. you know, that um, teachers and, and uh, mm -hmm. anybody working with kids has to step back for a minute and ask themselves, you know, not, not what's wrong with this kid, but what's this child's story and, and be able to, you know, be with them in that. It's important. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, behavior is communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it, it's telling us what children need even if it's not what we want to see in the moment yeah. that it's happening. How do we, um, how, how do we deal with the stigma um, for kids who are known as foster kids mm. or, or the stigma of her foster parents, the stigma of you know, indigenous children who, uh, or communities? How do, we, how do we deal with that? want to throw in the stigma of mental health while you're at it? Yeah. Yes. You know, because they're getting diagnoses <laughs> yeah. at the same time. Yes. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we're so accustomed to it. I don't think that it's a, it's a bad stigma in our community to be a foster child. It, it's pretty rare that you're not. So mental health would be, a, it is still a stigma, you know? It's something that we're working through. You know, I asked you, Deanna, sorry, I asked you um, why with all the things that you deal with, why you continue to be a foster parent? Well, we're definitely not going to be giving up on our little two, and I think you just do. It's not to say cliche, but it, it's just kind of who we are, <laughs> like just something we're doing.
Yeah. And I would agree, like, I don't know what it is about fostering. I don't, it, and it, <clears throat> when we, when we started fostering, my own family wanted to disown me. And I'm, that's not all of them, but that's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. like it was just, it, and now how do we change that? I have no idea. I mm -hmm. just, and I struggle with it every day. I think about it lots mm -hmm. because these are kids or little people that it, they don't, it's not, this was dealt, it's not something that, you know, was handed to them, right? It's not their fault, right? And the, and the trouble is, any of the experience I've had, a lot of this is just generational too. It's not just this first time family, it's a generational thing. And it'd be so nice to be able to, to work with that part of it and, and, and help, help everybody and, and not have this foster parent or foster child or indigenous child or we're all. You definitely find out who your friends are and who, who isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, also, you know, um, it's, you know, the whole concept of do you tell, do you, do you make it open? My husband's wife passed away just after childbirth, and, and uh, so when I met my husband, my son was nine months old. And, um, and right from the very beginning, we always acknowledged. I called her mummy number one because she bore him. I'm mummy number two. So we used to cry together. We used to, you know, all of that stuff. I think it's really important that kids are okay with having that sense of who they are and where they come from. Mm -hmm. And yet, so many times there's this big debate about whether or not you should tell kids that they're fostered or adopted or, you know, you hide things from them and where they come from. Well, I don't, I don't think it's a debate. <laughs> I, I would say <laughs> tell kids where they yeah. come from. They yeah. Know. They know, they hear things, they hear the friends that aren't really your friends talking about, right? Like yeah. that kind of, and you know, when I talked earlier, it's that part of being transparent and being able to talk about hard things with kids makes you safer to be with. If we don't have secrets, if we don't have things mm -hmm. that we have to be ashamed of, um, if we can talk about the fact that you want to be here and there, uh, guess what, then you can manage it. It's that, it's yeah. the piece around not talking about the things that are right in front of us all mm -hmm. the time that get in the way of any chance of healing, I think. And also that sense that, you know, these kids are gonna grow up to be adults and they're gonna be a part of our society. So it's our responsibility to try and um, help them as much as we can. And that's a, a society. There's a lot of discussion around, you know, want, not wanting to pay more taxes or to, to help these kids or to, or to pay for these programs. But this is a really important area. These kids end up in society and how do we help them? And the ways in which, you know, we were talking about it at the before, uh, talking about the way in which these kids got really taken up in your community, that you remembered growing up yeah. with foster kids and thought of them as your cousins, not as foster kids, right? That yeah. only as an adult do you realize what that yeah. was. And it's the same, I think about a school that I worked with that, you know, uh, that there was a woman's shelter that we call them feeder schools. So when kids come into that woman's shelter, they go to that school. That happens a lot in the mm -hmm. transients. You know, kids who move from shelter to shelter end up 
going to many schools, and then they start to lose all those opportunities for the consistency, for the teacher who knows them and cares about them, for them to have peers and friends and self-esteem and do well. So it kind of gets in the way. But one of the, what I'm trying to talk about is initially when those kids would come to the school, all the other kids would just say, because it's pretty easy to know who the new kid is, mm -hmm. and you'd automatically go, oh, that's a shelter kid. They were called shelter kids. And so our agency went in and said, how can we make these kids? So we actually sat down with kids and said, you're the ambassador. We're gonna make ambassador kids. And every time there's a new kid who comes from this house, um, it's your job to take them around, show them everybody, meet the school, and then they would come with these. So it became this socially, not just acceptable, but expected activity that kids would immediately befriend the shelter kids. And they wouldn't be called the shelter kids anymore. They would have names and, and the school took it on. The principal took it on, the teachers took it on. Uh, these kids aren't gonna be ostracized on when they're here. This is our community. And when those kids leave, they would get cards from the whole classroom saying, we miss you and we hope you do well in your new school. And that can be a huge game changer for yeah. a kid. Yeah. to feel like I had this bad experience and, uh, and I have 30 new friends because of it. Not, I didn't go to a school and get ignored for, for weeks on end. Wow. But it, it took the adults, it took a community to change how that was happening. And I think we could do that in all other environments yeah. too. We were very fortunate in our school. They were just huge ambassadors. And when our kids graduated, it was like they were a special kid. Like they were just, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And the power they got from that, they just, it was huge. Absolutely huge. So we were fortunate to have the school that we did. They really took these kids in and school took them under their wing. Makes a that. huge difference. Yeah. yeah. School is really important. All those front lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm going to open this up. To, uh, to q and A, I I have no idea what time it is because my watch died. <laughs> so it's five to eight. Okay, so we have time for a question. Does anybody have a burning question before we, uh, we start to wrap up? No, it's a great panel. I haven't even begun to ask them half the questions I want to ask. Hi, okay. Um, hi. Come on up, I don't know where, oh, there's the mic, right there. Okay, thank you. Uh, well, <laughs> you can yell, you can yell, okay. My question is actually for Deanna. So as a foster parent, what keeps you grounded and going? Like what is your self-care to continue um, serving and continue caregiving? Those exact words, lots of self-care. Um, whether it's, my husband knows if I, I'm gonna go meditate. My husband and I try to find time just for us, which is it's very slim. <laughs> Even if it's, we attend lots of training, and I know they try and teach us in training not to use that as date night, but it, it is our date night, and we don't mind. <laughs> but that is just time where it's us, and we can have a conversation about what, a, what the training is we attended, uh, we do travel a lot and, and we take two vehicles because that's just 
I haven't. Uh, Nine kids. <laughs> I just haven't. <laughs> I can't go to the bus yet, but uh, we'd rather travel in two, and it gives us a little bit of time that we each have with, you know, a few different kids at a time, and it works for us. We actually just survived traveling to Disneyland, <laughs> and I envisioned the absolute worst, and it just it was amazing, Aww. so it was great. But lots of self-care, but I also include the kids in it too, so. And humor. And humor, lots of humor. My husband is full of humor. Everybody knows Sean, so <laughs> yeah. That's a great Thank, question. Thank, Thank you. you so much for that. Um, that reminds me, Carrie, one of the things that you said, that you told me, is that um, you're part of your mantra, or the thing that you do is always passing on strategies whether it's coping strategies, strategies to help you, to help others. Um, can you tell us a bit about what some of those strategies are? Um. <laughs> Did I put you on the spot? You just put me on the spot yeah. there. <laughs> trying to think through it. We nice can come example. back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think it's really important that we understand that our communities um, are, are in a bit of a deficit in terms of learning and opportunity. And so um, our, our team takes on a real advocacy role in making sure that we gather all the information we can when we're in community and we are talking to parents because we do a lot of time, we, do a, we spend a lot of time just talking to people in, mm -hmm. in, in, in coffee rooms and you know, trying to find out what their needs are on the ground and, and just letting people know what's available, what's out there, where, what can you access. Um, but also their own kind of self-care strategies. And, and uh, mm -hmm. we do a lot of uh, in-service um, with staffing, with different uh, programs in different communities, mm -hmm. and just really try to educate and, and um, mentor and support as best we can. Um, one of the things that I thought about with you is the fact that here you're in this unique position because you're involved in this organization where you get to see all these parents uh, foster parents and, and uh, who are, are dealing with all kinds of different challenges and that kind of thing. What have you seen that works really well for people? What are some of the key things that you've seen and, and probably things that, that you pick up that you've dealt with as well? Well, probably the biggest thing is what we talked about, being open yeah. and being very honest, right? Like don't try to hide things. And I think that's the biggest thing. If I'm even when yeah. I'm talking to other foster parents, or yeah. it, we have such great conversations, and and we're because we're, I mean, you don't, don't want to talk about other people's kids, but we we're both we're all foster parents, so we get to share and stuff like that. And and being honest is is huge, I think. And okay, to our keynote, last words. <laughs> um, you know, that was, uh, uh, it's obviously, it's something, it's very complex. Um, and we've talked a bit about the lived experience side of, of um, uh, trauma and foster care and foster care in general. Is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with before we conclude the panel discussion? Something that's not, something that's just struck me here as yeah. you were talking and we're talking about, we often talk about parenting being the hardest job in the world and that uh, that people are expected to do incredible things with the least amount of social support to do it right that that we expect parents to be 
perfect, to have children to be perfect, and that they're supposed to somehow do that all on their own without this community. And, you know, we talk about it takes a, I saw a cute little meme on Facebook that said, I don't get this village. I, I hear it takes a village to raise a child, and I'm just wondering, will they come to me? Where do I find this village? And, and I thought, that's such a great way of understanding that when you are parenting, you're parenting in this environment where parenting is really important, and yet somehow you're expected to do it all on your own and not know anything about it. And what you just said, which struck me, is we expect this of parents in these, like, you, you know, here's your family and this is the way. And we do not think about it for families that are unique and meeting all of these special needs. We, uh, we don't have, we're not as supportive around step families and blended families, let alone foster families. And if you think about the jobs that you've taken on, they're really the most important jobs in our society, mm -hmm. which is caring for children that haven't been cared for properly in the beginning somehow, in some whatever, have, who have been harmed in some way in the caregiving process. You are picking up, um, it really is the most important work, and we should be doing more to support people. I think part of the reason that people don't foster is that they're scared because it's hard and imagine if we supported people and said of course you're scared and of course it's hard and of course you're going to feel this and you're going to feel that and i'm right here and the phone is right here and um and these children are all of our responsibilities whether they live right. in your house or yours mm -hmm. yeah. um whether they're in my classroom or whether they're in you know the supermarket we have a responsibility mm -hmm. to support the caregiving of children, not just to preach the perfection of it all without having to uh, be up all night with a crying baby who hasn't been, who can't self-soothe yet, right? Imagine what that, that's what people aren't signing up for, and that's what these babies really need, right? So I just want to say hats off to the panel. <laughs> Because uh, this is this is important work, and if yeah. somehow your stories inspire other people to do this work, then so be it. For yeah. love, for thank love. You. Thank you. Wow, thank you. That was like the perfect ending. <laughs> um, so I want to thank Dr. Angelique Jenny for that wonderful presentation and for being uh, coming up from Calgary to be with us today. Deanna Morrison, thank you, and uh, Renee Rougeau. I want to say Rajot because I come from Eastern Canada. <laughs> Rajot um, and uh, and Carrie Avenduti. It's always wonderful having you on any panel. Thank you so much. Thank you to our panel members. So just to wrap up tonight, the amazing thing is these panel members have never met until tonight. They get about an hour beforehand yeah. to gel with Leslie. Yeah. There's a little prep talk prior, but this is it. I am amazed how well you came together as a family mm -hmm. in, in doing this particular session. This was a very difficult session. Yeah. It's emotionally charged. There's so many issues within it, so I applaud all of you. You did a fantastic job. I just want to say something about Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie's our program manager for our mental health FASD program on three First Nations communities and maybe four. Um, and she's quite quiet, but she has a lot of wisdom, which we really appreciate at CASA. I'm not making you old. 
I just really appreciate it. So just to wrap up, our next session is March 17th with Dr. Cam Wild. It's on addictions and mental health, again, here at TELUS. Uh, please feel free to follow the CASA Foundation on Twitter and Facebook. Um, we have to be out of here by 9 a.m. or 9 p.m., sorry. Oh, that's an overnighter. Wouldn't that be fun? We all get to sleep. Um, tonight, because TELUS needs to close by 9, and we don't like to keep them over. Uh, please fill out your evaluations. Your evaluations actually drive the lecture series, so it's really important to us. Again, thank you, panel members. Wonderful work. Um, if you have any questions, the panel members and Dr. Jenny will be out in the foyer for a few minutes, and please feel free to give us any feedback at feedback at casaservices.org. Feel free to text us at CASA 393939 if you're feeling generous. Again, your support is really important, and we want to keep the conversation going on children's mental health. Thank you so much. Thank you.